1: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananon, M.D., Jawbreaker, Kruger, Workman, Kenway, Toves, Loining. Two Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Legends, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Verdigan, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Kathy, Emmy, Matthew, and W.D., as well as our newest commodores, Charles. Logan, and Pablo. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. Today's episode has got me caught up on names. I've wasted an inordinate amount of time reading about naming conventions, looking for a particular fact, and failing to find it. I've picked up a bunch of other interesting factoids along the way. For example, did you know that the Age of Reason and the corresponding move away from an overtly religious society, corresponds almost exactly with the rise of floral names for women. An article by Neil Burtis points out that, at least in the Anglosphere, names like Daisy, Hazel, Holly, Ivy, Lily, Marigold, Poppy, and Rose all came into prominence at the exact same time in the early 1800s. This was a move away from biblical names like Mary and Elizabeth, which, along with Anne, accounted for fully half of all girls' names in 1700. In that same year, John, William, and Thomas accounted for half of all boys' names in England. And it's one of those that's been nagging at me. Thomas. I've been trying to figure out why it was such a popular name in the 1600s. I mean, I've got nothing against the name Thomas, and I understand that it's a biblical name. Thomas was one of the apostles. But that doesn't account for how often it seems to pop up. But in the coming weeks, we are going to be inundated with Thomases. It's a, it's a plague of Thomases. If it were simply a biblical thing, or even an apostle thing, then why are there no significant famous pirates named Matthew? I mean, we've got two Bartholomews. We've got Bartholomew Sharp and Black Bart Roberts, but we've got no Black Matt. Although, I should note that Bartholomew Roberts was really named John, and he took up the name Bartholomew, maybe, in reference to Bartholomew Sharp. But why are there so many pirates named Thomas? This question sat there in the back of my mind, unnoticed, unimportant, but growing. It started nagging at me little by little every time I came across another pirate named Thomas, or a governor named Thomas, or a nobleman named Thomas. They're just everywhere. So I began to dig. But despite all the digging, I couldn't find a reasonable solution. There was no King Thomas. There were no noblemen named Thomas of any particular significance at the time. There were, however, priests named Thomas. Thomas Becket has a special significance to the English people, and then there are the super-famous priests like Thomas Aquinas. But I also discovered that, for a long, long time, Thomas wasn't even really a name. Thomas the Apostle wasn't even really named Thomas. His name was Judas, but since there were already two Judases in that group of apostles, Jesus decided to call this one the Aramaic word for twin, which is actually how the name survived. It was in the monasteries in the late imperial Roman era and the post-imperial dark ages, when a monastery had too many men with the same name. They chose to follow Christ's lead and called one of the men, Thomas. So I realize that these are the ravings of a lunatic mind who's been stuck in quarantine for too long. But there are a lot of Thomases with which we will be concerned moving forward. It's enough that it is kind of weird. Which really, I suppose, is kind of fitting. If Thomas means twin, it makes sense that we have so many of them all at once. And happily, for our narrative flow, All of them are New England stories, or at least they have their roots in North America. Their stories, as we will see, rove all over the world. This is episode 162, What's in a Name? As this is a North American story at its heart, it might be sensible to begin with the origins of the word Yankee. Oh, you thought we were done with the etymological nomenclature? Well, buckle up, buckaroo. Nobody, linguists, I mean, conclusively agrees where the word Yankee, Y-A-N-K-E-E, comes from. No one in America can really agree what it even means. In its broadest sense, it just means an American. But that's something you'll hear mostly from people outside the U.S., you know, in old... World War II movies, you might hear the Brits talk about the Yanks. But inside the U.S., well, if you're visiting, which you shouldn't be doing right now, but if you are, I recommend that you don't call someone from Texas or South Carolina a Yankee. Back in our Civil War, Yankee was a term used to denote Union soldiers from the North. But if we go back even further to the American Revolution, Yankee was a term for men from the northern colonies, or states at that point. Not necessarily New England, although today Yankee is often used to refer to New Englanders, but it included other states like Delaware and New Jersey and New York. Of course, one of New York City's most famous institutions is the Yankees, one of their baseball teams. Now, however you choose to use the word Yankee, keep on keeping on, nobody's here to stop you. But historically, I think, most of the evidence points to Yankee being a nickname for New Yorkers. Mostly because it probably derived not from an English word, but a Dutch name. That name is the Dutch variant of John, the name Jan, J-A-N. It intersects with our story in the person of Jan Willems, alias Yankee. David F. Marley points out in Pirates of the Americas, quote, Willems appears to have called himself Yantier, a diminutive form of Jan, traditionally associated with Dutch sailors, much as Jack was among the English. However, this nickname was most often rendered Yankee, J-A-N-K-E, by other nationalities he came into contact with. End quote, and you'll note that all of those names begin with the letter J. But J itself has a strange history. It's in English our newest letter. It only came into common use in the 1600s. Before that time, the letter I was used, but it had kind of a Y or Ya sound. Even in some of the older texts I deal with, you'll see John spelled I O N. It took me a while to figure out that Ion Coxon and Ion Cook were the same man as John Coxon and John Cook. That quirk of spelling and pronunciation really makes all of this fit, though. Jan Willems was called Yankee, but when the English encountered that troublesome little J, they used their corresponding English y. Now, I'm no linguist here. But I mean, come on, here's a Dutchman named Janke who sailed out of New England almost exclusively with English pirates. And the evidence there might be stronger if we could prove that Jan Willems was born in New Netherland, or even that he lived there. But we can't. We can, though, conclusively say that he began his piratical career sailing out of Rhode Island, alongside an Englishman named Thomas. And as this Thomas is our first buccaneer from North America, I'd like to spend some time talking about Thomas Paine. Now, we shouldn't confuse him with the Enlightenment era philosopher who wrote The Rights of Man and The Age of Reason. The pirate Thomas Paine was born in London in 1632. His father also named Thomas Paine, died less than a year after he was born. His mother, though, Jane Gallion, remarried. She married a wealthy and influential Puritan based out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, a man named Thomas Mayhew. You see what I'm getting at with the Thomases here, and oh, we're not done. Mayhew married Jane while he was in London to get a license to purchase some real estate. At the time, it may have seemed like relatively inconsequential real estate, but today it's some of the most august real estate in North America. He was there to purchase Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket Island, and the Elizabeth Islands. Thomas Mayhew and Jane Gallion had four daughters together, including an Elizabeth and a daughter named Martha, after whom Martha's Vineyard is named. That Martha, Martha Mayhew, was Thomas Paine's half-sister. Not only that, and this is true here, Martha Mayhew is Taylor Swift's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. Great-great, Thomas Paine, a pirate, is her great 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 uncle which is about how distantly I am related to Benjamin Franklin, who, as it happens, is the grandson of Thomas Mayhew's factor and personal assistant. What I'm saying is, Taylor, if you're listening, and I'm sure you are, I am your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather's assistant's grandsons, I want to say, like, second cousin six or seven times removed.
1: What's that make us? Absolutely
2: nothing! My point through all of this is that Thomas Paine, notorious pirate, had very deep roots in colonial America. He's often credited as having been born on Martha's Vineyard. And while that's not true, he did grow up there from the 1630s on. A ton of the colonial bigwigs we've met so far, we're talking governors and landowners who owned territories, While they were present at the estate of Thomas Mayhew on more than one occasion, Thomas Paine probably met them as a young man. However, young Thomas Paine earned his sea legs in 1647, at the age of 15, on one of his stepfather's whaling ships. A few years later, in 1656, he probably first encountered the West Indies, on a merchant voyage on another one of his stepfather's ships down to Jamaica. This was among the very first merchant voyages to the island after the capture in 1655. It was encouraged by none other than Oliver Cromwell. But we should remember that Thomas Paine was a stepson in the 17th century. He was housed and fed and educated by a prominent man in a prominent patrician family He went to church with them on Sundays, but I doubt he was ever really included as part of the family. I'm sure his mother loved him, but by 15, he was sent to work at sea, far away and out of sight. He was never going to inherit any land or money or influence from his stepfather. When Thomas Mayhew's eldest son died, Thomas Paine wasn't even considered to inherit the family business. Instead, Mayhew chose his grandson, who was an infant at the time. And we shouldn't feel sorry for Thomas Paine here. This isn't some fairy tale about an evil stepfather. That's just how it was. But it was about to get even harder. In 1660, Charles II was restored and all of those old Puritan parliamentarian commissions were put under scrutiny. The business for a Puritan like Thomas Mayhew was put on hold, or at least severely scaled back, while the ownership rights for Mayhew's holdings were reviewed. Those rights would eventually be secured by the Mayhew family, but that would take over a decade. And we don't know what Thomas Paine was up to during this period, but we know that he wasn't working for his stepfather. It's possible, although unsubstantiated, that he might have taken part in some of those raids we mentioned last time. Those attacks against royalist ships that just happened to disappear with nary a trace. The attacks that pressured King Charles to leave Massachusetts alone and allowed men like Thomas Mayhew to keep their land. We also don't know if he signed on with a privateership in the Second Anglo-Dutch War, but it's very likely that he did. We do know that in 1666, his mother died, and all ties between Thomas Paine and the Massachusetts set were severed. Again, I'm sure that was tragic and sorrowful, but by that point, Thomas Paine was a grown man. He was 34. He was an experienced, seasoned mariner. The next few years though are similarly mysterious in the life of Thomas Paine. The legends are expansive though. Some of them may even be true. There are those that would suggest that Thomas Paine sailed alongside no less notorious pirates than Francois Lolonet or Admiral Henry Morgan. And you know, maybe. Some say that Thomas Paine even took part in the sack of Panama in 1671 we do know that he wasn't captain of a ship on that voyage. We know the captain's names, but he could have been a crewman. There were a lot of Brethren of the Coast at Panama, and why not? Payne was set adrift in 1666 from all his familial ties. There was money and opportunity and adventure down south. In fact, I would say it's even likely that Thomas Paine sailed with the Brethren, maybe not with Morgan himself, but with someone who, Maybe Pierre Le Picard or Roque Brasiliano. Maybe he sailed with Charles Swan. We do know that Thomas Paine served as a privateer in the Franco-Dutch War, beginning in 1672. He did so under English colors as part of the Third Anglo-Dutch War. But in 1674, the English pulled out of the war. They ended the Third Anglo-Dutch War which was a tricky situation in the West Indies. Jamaica and Saint-Domingue were close allies. They were the only non-Spanish settlements in a sea of Spanish territory. Both Port Royal and Tortuga were surrounded by Spanish waters and Spanish lands. They shared a national, royal, colonial alliance against Spain. And for the brethren of the coast that lived in Port Royal and Tortuga, it was a real conundrum their entire system was built around their friendship and their shared enmity of Spain. It's not like the Spanish were just going to up and forget about all of the murder and rape and torture and burning and the theft, just because the English pulled out of the war. So the English buccaneers, who were in that tricky situation, switched over to French colors. This was done on the auspices of the governor of Saint-Domingue, named Bertrand de He was the governor that moved the capital of Saint-Domingue from Tortuga, which was never really an official capital, but he moved it down to Petit Guave in the southwest, which was a tactically solid move. Petit Guave lies on the north coast of that long peninsula in southwest Haiti. Any Spanish fleet that was attempting to reach them would have to sail around the peninsula and past all of the forts that were being built on it. If they were attempting to ride to Petit Guav, they would have to surmount those forts on land. The other option was to sail around the northwest corner, but that would take them past Tortuga, which no.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty,
0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voyware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Kat
1: and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies?
2: of Saint-Domingue. Really, he was an agent of the ill-fated and short-lived French West India Company. It's D'Augrand that began Tortuga's policy of handing out letters of marque to anyone who asked for them, including foreign privateers. This policy, combined with the end of the Anglo-Dutch War, led to a mass exodus of privateers from their national service to French colors, and it was shortly going to cause real problems for the English. But the list of privateers that signed up to continue fighting in the Franco-Dutch War on the side of France, well, it's all of the most notable pirates in the era. All of those that sailed in the first Pacific adventure did so with letters of marque from Bertrand d'Auron, John Coxon, Bartholomew Sharp, John Cook, Edward Davis, all of William Dampier's friends. But back in the West Indies, D'Augrand gave commissions to a bunch of Dutch buccaneers. Lauro de Graaf, Michael Andresu, Nicholas von Horn, and most notable today, Jan Willems. Only a few English buccaneers stayed on or around Tortuga in this period. Notable on that list are George Wright and Thomas Paine. No, we don't know where George Wright is from. Presumably originally from England, but he could very well be a Boston man, or maybe from Providence. We don't know. He wasn't related to one of the richest men in the colonies, so no one wrote it down. We do know a bit about him, though. There's a letter, an unsent letter, from Henry Morgan to George Wright, It was probably transcribed, since Morgan never learned to read and write, but it spoke to Wright very familiarly. It tried to talk him out of his French service. Serving a foreign prince was not illegal for Englishmen, but it was frowned upon, and it would be outlawed before long. That letter, though, talked about the treacherous nature of the French, as they both knew very well. It suggests that Wright may have been a companion of Henry Morgan's. Even, it says to me, he may have been present on Henry Morgan's 1666 raid against Maracaibo. That's the raid on which the French and English forces had a falling out over the allocation of beef that ended in one death and very nearly in a pirate battle there on the beach. I mean, it's not unthinkable that Thomas Paine was there as well. That was the year his mother died, but maybe he didn't know about it because he was busy murdering Spaniards and looting their houses at the time. But we don't have a lot about either Englishman during the latter years of the war. We do know a bit. For example, Thomas Paine was noted in a report about another English freebooter, a man named Captain John Bennett. We know that he served John Bennett, but we don't know his rank. However, we can assume that he was an officer, quartermaster, maybe. We can assume that because in 1675, when Bennett captured a Spanish prize, he gave it to Thomas Payne. This was Payne's first acknowledged command as a privateer. He christened his new vessel, which he would sail for many years, St. David. And then again, we lose track of him. But a little over a year later, Bertrand d'Augrand, the governor, and Petit Guave died. And Saint-Domingue had a new man installed. His name was Monsieur de Cousset, Sieur de Ponquet. And the Sieur de Ponquet is our best source for all of this. There are, of course, copious records from the Spanish about the attacks, but while they give us great details about the raids, They don't give us unbiased accounts of the pirates, you know, the real men. I mean, if you were robbed and tortured at the point of a musket, would you really care about this man's complex childhood? No, they were all bloodthirsty monsters. So the best picture we have about the earlier lives of most of these men, Thomas Paine notwithstanding, comes from the Sieur de Ponquet. He was an actual governor, a real governor, sent from the court of Louis XIV to command Saint-Domingue. His job there was twofold. First, and most importantly, above all else, win the war. Second, though, in order to achieve the first goal, he had to figure out what Deshaugrand had been up to. I think we can ascribe to the fact that he was a royally appointed governor, that he wrote down everything. So everyone take a moment and thank Monsieur de Cousse, the sieur de Ponquet. He spelled out the situation in Saint-Domingue for the crown. He reported on the pirate lord that ruled the brethren of the coast and Tortuga, a buccaneer of ill repute named Michel de Gramont. Gramont was a known factor back in France, he was a minor nobleman, the son of a minor nobleman, and a chevalier, a knight. He still held that title as it happened, but he was exiled as a young man for a murder of passion. But now that Henry Morgan had gone straight, Michel de Grammont was kind of the top-ranking buccaneer in the West Indies. The governor talks about him at length, but he also gives us an account of the buccaneers that his predecessor, Bertrand d'Augrand, had given letters of marque. Some of those letters of marque the new governor elected to revoke. That included all of the Englishmen in the Pacific, but some he chose to give new commissions. That lot included Laro de Groff and his fleet. They were all very closely tied to Monsieur de Cousset and to Saint-Domingue in general. But in the interest of winning the war, he included a few others who were less closely tied to Petit Guavre and closer to Tortuga, Jan Willems, Thomas Paine, and George Wright. And this is actually our first ever historical note of Jan Willems. But the governor tells us that Jan Willems had come to the West Indies alongside Thomas Paine, and they had been sailing together for some time. But aside from these slim mentions, The record of the actions of these privateers in this part of the war aren't clear. We do know that in April of 1676, George Wright, Thomas Paine, and Jan Willems captured a French bark back from Spanish control. It was a bark that had been captured in the Bay of Biscay, off the coast of La Rochelle, by Spanish Biscayners, then sold in Santo Domingo. But this little buccaneer fleet recaptured her off the Spanish Main. They would have taken her back to Saint-Domingue, but that was an impossibility considering the Armada de Barlavento was sailing around at the time, so instead they traveled to Saint-Croix, which unfortunately meant they had to give the ship back to France instead of, you know, turning her into a pirate ship. But aside from these brief mentions in the record, there's not a lot to go on. We can guess about some of their actions, but really that would just assume that they may have been involved in the large privateer actions that were taking place at this point in the war. For example, the 1677 raid sent against Venezuela. Now that was a fleet of almost entirely privateers, which really we should read as buccaneers and pirates, but it was led by an admiral and a general who had been sent from the old country to the new world to fight this battle. These were real officers, not buccaneers. And they chose to use military discipline on their men, on the buccaneers, on these brethren of the coast. That means beatings at the mast, which was a large part of why most of the brethren had left naval service in the first place. Those brethren rose up, they mutinied, and very nearly killed those old-world commanders before a few of the ringleaders stopped them, saying that this would end poorly for everyone concerned. Instead, they all just got on their ships and left. This large fleet that had been assembled to destroy Venezuela fell apart before even getting halfway there. And then there are the raids of Michel de Gramont. He attacked Cuba more than once. He harried the Spanish fleet off the coast of Santo Domingo, and these are attacks that all of the Brethren took part in at some point, but we don't know any specifics about which may have included Jan Willems and Thomas Paine. But you can see the problem here. All of these Englishmen and all of these Dutchmen were sailing for France under French colors and attacking France's enemies, the Spanish. But their own countries, England and the Netherlands, were at peace with Spain. In the case of the Netherlands, they were allied with Spain in the war. It was causing a lot of diplomatic tension. Spain was repeatedly sending emissaries to London and Amsterdam decrying all of the actions of these privateers. But it took two years before either England or the Netherlands got around to actually doing anything about it. All of it came to a head in 1678, when England re-entered the conflict, but this time they did so not on the side of France, but on the side of the Dutch, and on the side of their allies, the Spanish. Now, in peacetime, English mariners were more or less welcome to sell their services to whoever they wanted, but when war was joined, it was... Well, it actually still wasn't illegal, but it was very frowned upon to sail for your enemies, not quite treason, but almost. Later that year, 1678, largely because England joined the war, all of the European powers finally reached a ceasefire agreement. They began their discussions that would lead to a spiderweb of treaties that would be called the Peace of Nijmegen. But this ceasefire before the treaty was officially sanctioned, stopped the fighting in Europe, but not in the West Indies. If anything, it grew worse in the West Indies because of the ceasefire. Both sides were jockeying for position, trying to get the best diplomatic angle through private military means. They couldn't have their generals leading armies, but they could have pirates and privateers who were less controllable, undertaking actions against their not-quite-enemies. This state of affairs went on for over a year, and there were a ton of small naval engagements, by which I mean pirates attacking Spanish shipping and the Spanish sinking pirate ships. But finally, word reached the new world that a peace had been reached. Jan Willems was selling yet another Spanish prize at one of the French territories in the Leeward Islands when word reached him there, and the governor there asked Willems to take that news to Santo Domingo and Saint-Domingue. This was a job for which Jan Willems was perfectly suited. He wasn't French or Spanish, but he knew those waters very well, as he had spent years raiding Spanish shipping in them, but more to the point, he spoke Spanish, and French, and Dutch, and English, but that's neither here nor there for this discussion. Still, though, it was a very dangerous mission. I mean, what are you going to do? A man who has just spent years attacking the Spanish out of Santo Domingo? Raise up a white flag and sail into the harbor? Well, that's exactly what he was considering it seemed to be his best option. How else was he going to get word to Santo Domingo? Jan Willems was weighing his options, anchored off the north coast of Santo Domingo, when that decision was made for him. A few of his men were on shore when a Spanish cavalry contingent arrived on the scene and arrested them. We're talking 80, maybe 100, maybe 150 men, all mounted and heavily armed. And Jan Willems as he had promised the governor back in the Leeward Islands, had to go ashore to inform them of the peace. I mean, imagine that. He had to row to shore in an open rowboat with maybe a dozen men to face a full Spanish cavalry contingent. Willems, though, was well armed. He had two of the best weapons in the world. He had a white flag and a notice of the peace that had been reached. He did not bring any guns with him, he rode to shore and informed the commander that the war was finally over. Then he asked the commander to inform his own governor that the governor in Saint-Domingue requested his presence or the presence of an agent to formalize their peace as per the Treaty of Nijmegen. And imagine that from the Spanish commander's point of view, You finally have a pirate ship anchored just offshore in your sights. You have a few of their men in your custody just where you want them. You can demand any terms you wish, and then, nope, a treaty has been reached. But he did as asked. He went back to the capital, and the governor sent that same commander to Saint-Domingue. Jan Willems was at that meeting as well. He confirmed that this was the commander who had treated his men well and had to translate that meeting as he was the only person there who spoke all of the languages necessary. That meeting ended, finally, the last fighting in the Franco-Dutch War. But while that war was over, other conflicts would arise, some official and some not, in which the pirates would have to fight. This gave all of the Brethren of the Coast a a chance to take a break. It had been a long time since they had been able to just relax for once. But then word started trickling in that the Spanish were absolutely furious about the depredations going on in the Pacific. Men were being killed down there. I thought the fighting was over. So it seemed like a good time to make oneself scarce. Those who had the capability decided it was a good opportunity to go on a vacation to somewhere far, far away from any Spanish territory. In late 1680, a ship sailed north from Tortuga, past San Augustine and up the coast. That ship carried, we know, Thomas Paine, although quite possibly as they disappear from the record for a time as well, Jan Willems, and George Wright. In early 1681, it arrived at Plymouth, on Cape Cod. This was not a crew of raucous buccaneers arriving in the Puritan city to raise hell. In fact, it was quite the contrary. These were not regular crewmen. These were all officers and trusted men, and maybe some of them with their companions, who were looking for a quiet place to relax, a place to lay low for a while. But not too low, they weren't hiding out. They actually began making something of a splash there in Plymouth. Not a violent or drunken or debaucherous splash, though. Thomas Paine, at least, funded the construction of a windmill. It's the oldest windmill in Massachusetts. Still, today, you can go see it. It's the Eastham Windmill. It's on the National Register of Historic Places, and it's pretty cool. And if you do, it's just a short drive down to the WIDA Museum, also on Cape Cod. But building a windmill is not laying low. It's laying down roots. And those roots, well, they proved strong. They would last for Thomas Paine and Jan Willems, even through the storms that were yet to come. Next time, Thomas Paine, Jan Willems, and yet another pirate named Thomas will weather those storms through the early 1680s. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of you who have signed up to become patrons on Patreon, and there are a lot of new folks this week. I'd like to thank all of you, everybody who has donated to the show through the website, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show to anybody you think might enjoy it. You all make this show possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brilli. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can find us at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, these days, most importantly, thank you. Be safe, and be well.
0: Let him live on in legend tonight